Good evening. Y'all awake? Kind of. Y'all are about y'all y'all are kind of quiet tonight. Y'all are about as quiet as that WVU game the other day. That was the first quarter was exciting. Did anybody go to that? Who stayed till the end? Wow. All all six of y'all stayed with all 14 of the other people that stayed till the end. It is it is not fun when you're winning by 40 points in the second quarter. Well, let's just jump right in. So we've been in a cool series talking about the minor prophets. And before we even say anything about that, who in here thinks of middle school, middle school as your favorite time in life? There's, there's three sarcastic hands and one serious hand back there. Two. There's two hands. All right. Who, who thinks about middle school and you just kind of cringe? You're just like, okay, some people, have, some people have three hands up. They are very passionate about this. I agree. If I, had, if I had more hands, I would put as many hands as I had up because middle school was like the worst time of my life. It was, um, it just wasn't good. Uh, I, one thing, I successfully managed to get kicked out of school twice in middle school. And uh, I'm not exaggerating. Um, and so basically... I go, and in middle school, you know, I'm trying to figure myself out. I was super mischievous, but I wasn't a smart kind of mischievous. And so I was kind of like super mischievous, but I always got in trouble because I always got caught. And, well, so I go, and I just happen, so I just happen to start a fire at the school. And for some reason, that was frowned upon. And I got kicked out for that. And the principal hated me. He was like, you're trying to burn down my school. Get out of here. And it's, that's almost what he said verbatim. And so I was kicked out, and I had to go to an alternative school for a semester. It was very lame. And then I came back to the school, and he was like, he, he just was waiting for the day that I made any mistake so that he could just get rid of me for good. He hated the fact that I existed. Now pause that story. Who in here likes it when unfair things happen to you? Who likes it when unfair things happen to you? When unjust things or things that are an injustice, when they happen to you, who likes that? All right, so we're all in agreement that that stinks. You kind of don't have to train people to hate injustice or to hate things that are unfair because it's like when you're born, like it's one of like the first words you learn, this is unfair or this isn't, this isn't right. We don't like unfair things happening to us. Now. Now that I've said that, let's jump back into the story. So I'm back at this school. This guy hates me. And so I just come to school one day. And you know what? You know what happens when you're a knucklehead? You attract other knuckleheads. And so I had a friend who was a knucklehead. And he comes to school one day. It's literally he, like, shows up. It's before school even starts. And he's like, hey, guys, you want to see something cool? Which is, like, code for this is, this is, this is not good. Like, usually you go in the opposite direction when – Young, young boys say, oh, this isn't good. So he's, he has, like, big inflection when he says you want to see something cool, and so you know it's really bad. And then he pulls out something, and it's, like, serious paraphernalia. And he's like, hey, check this out. Check out what you can do with it. So he uses it, and then he says, who else wants to try? And then everybody else is like, ooh, man, this is like, 
this is much deeper waters than I intended to get into even before school started. This is, we're all knuckleheads, but this, this is too much for us. And me being the knucklehead that I was, I was like, hey, well, let me see it. So I grab it from him. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I literally, I wasn't even thinking about using it. I just literally was looking at it. And then all of a sudden we hear, hey, what are you kids doing over there? And a teacher comes over. And everybody else scatters. I'm holding the thing, and my friend who brought it didn't leave either. Doesn't leave either. I guess he wanted to keep it or something. And so we're both standing there, and he's like, what is this? Oh, this is really bad. Let's go to the principal's office. So we go to the principal's office, and I'm there before the principal, principal yet again. This isn't a new thing. And he's like, Mr. Goody. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then he sees my friend, and he's like, all right, so what happened? My friend. I, I mean, it was like, he was so noble. He just said, hey, I brought it to school. I used it. No one else used it. Jordan didn't use it. He was just holding it. I just handed it to him. No one else used this. I brought it. It's mine. I was like, wow, that was easy. Like, it was great. Like, he just, <laughs> he just took the fall. And the principal says, oh, you're probably lying for Jordan Goody. No, Jordan Goody's probably high. Jordan Goody did this. You know what? This is what we're going to do. Young man, you are suspended for three days. And he looks at me and he says, and Jordan Goody, you're expelled. And I'm like, what? It's like, I didn't, I didn't do anything except hold this thing. And he said, yep, you try to burn down my school, I'm done with you. Get out of here. And no lie, he, like, kicked me out of the school. And my parents were really mad. They, like, brought lawyers to the school, and they were super mad. And, and I got kicked out again. He was a principal. I couldn't fight against him. That was probably the most unfair thing that ever happened to me in my life. Some of y'all looking at me, and your, fa- your mouths are open because you're just like, that really happened. Yes, that really happened. I got kicked out because I was me. I mean, I did try to burn down a school. So when you set a fire off in school, you can't, you can't get offended at stuff like this. I, just kind of, I, was, I was the only person who wasn't offended. I wasn't surprised at all. I was like, well, this kind of makes sense. You know, I guess I got to go. <laughs> the reason I say all of that is you don't, you don't have to train someone to not like injustice. We all hate injustice. You hear that story, and it just kind of bothers you a little bit. But we all experience injustice. We all experience unjust things happening to us, don't we? We see it all the time. We see it in the world that we live in. It bothers us. We see, you know, this guy or this girl who we like to go and the guy with the big car, he, he, he wins out. He wins the girl's heart. Or the girl with, I don't want to assume, I don't know what she has, but she has something that you, you lose out for, that, for whatever reason. Or you see the person get a better job than you. At whatever, get a promotion at your job just because, just because they have the right connections rather than them being smarter or working harder. We see that all the time. Or we see like more serious injustices. Injustices like sex trafficking, human trafficking. That's a very real injustice that we see. We see injustice when it comes to the environment where, you know, some things happen where profit is more important than the world that we leave behind for our for our children and for our grandchildren we see injustice when it comes to abortion the unborn not being able to decide whether their lives matter or not and someone else decides for them some people say that's an injustice some people say that's not an injustice we see a lot of different injustices in the world what do you do with all of these injustices what do you do with all of these feelings What do you do with all of these problems that you see around us? I know for me, one thing that's hard about injustice is seeing all of the different things that are oppressing 
and, and, and leaving certain people in this world feeling disenfranchised or looked over or pushed down, seeing all of these things and kind of feeling overwhelmed, feeling like, man, is there anything I can do about this? In fact, I don't even know what I can do about this. How do you really fix the world? How do you stop this stuff? What do you do with the injustice in this world? How does God feel about it? What does the Bible have to say about it? So we've been in this series talking about the minor prophets, and we've been talking about Hosea for the past couple of weeks. And now we're going to talk about a guy named Amos. Amos is a really cool dude. He was a uh, shepherd. He was also a fig tree farmer, whatever that is. He was legitimately that. It's like, I mean, imagine going to WVU and saying, yeah, I'm going to be a fig tree farmer. Okay, you know what? To better understand, basically what that is like, that's like that's like coming to WVU and saying, you know what, I want to be a janitor and I want to be the manager of the Mountain Lair Bowling Alley. That's what I want my degree to be in. And then you go and you tell your parents, like, hey, what do you want to do? Oh, I want to do Mountain Lair Bowling Management. That's that's what I want to do. That's kind of what he was. I mean, he was he was nothing. This guy, Amos, was a prophet. And just just remember about these minor prophets. These are very ordinary men who have an extraordinary role in their lives, an extraordinary function. They speak up for God. How he feels, they tell the nation that. But this guy, his name was Amos. He has this common job, and he goes, and he's from, he's from not a big city. He's not from like the L.A. or the New York of, of Judah back then. He's from Tekoa. Just to give you a picture of this guy, I got, I got a little picture uh, oh, there we go, a little drawing. That kind of helps you to understand what's going on before we even read anything about Amos. This will help you to see what's going on. We got Amos. You see him over in the bottom left corner? He's there with his fig tree and his sheep. And then you got, uh, you know, you got his house, which I'm still trying to make sense of this house. This house looks more like a doghouse to me, like, and not even a doghouse that you can live in. I don't, if he curled up in the fetal position, I don't think he could fit. Look, times were hard. Can't you see how bad times were? He can't even fit in his own house. It's really bad. But you see this drawing. He's in southern Judah, and then there's northern Israel. The reason I have this drawing up is from the Bible Project. Man, these guys are awesome. If you ever have questions about the Bible, check out the Bible Project. They, oh, it's so good. But you see, they're split. They're not one nation because they had, they had been one nation up until 1 Kings chapter 12, which it says, see, right there was pointing to the split. 1 Kings First Kings chapter 12, it talks about the death of a man named Solomon. Solomon was probably the greatest in regards to wealth and notoriety king that Israel ever had. But after he dies, stuff kind of gets bad in the country. And so in First Kings chapter 12, northern Israel and southern Judah, they split. This is like 150 years before the book of Amos. And so what's going on? Now, at this point in time, 150 years after that split, we have Amos, and he's looking. He's from Tekoa in southern Judah, and he's looking over to northern Israel, and he's looking at that king sitting there. His name is Jeroboam II. What we know about this guy is that he won a lot of battles, and in winning a lot of battles, he was able to get a lot of land and get a lot of wealth, but all the prophets agree that this was a really bad dude. Because he led the nation to apathy, to, to slavery, he made that popular again. 
And it just got to the point where injustice was all over the land in southern Judah and in northern Israel. So that's the setting that we have before we even look at, at the book of Amos. I hope that helps you to understand just a little bit of what's going on. So Amos is writing to a time where he's like, all right, I'm from Judah, but I'm looking at Israel. And so in Amos chapter 1, this is what it says. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II was son of Jehoash. Jeho- Jehoash was king of Israel. Hmm, that explains a lot, doesn't it? It's really funny because he's from, he's from southern Judah, but he's speaking to northern Israel, but his book, which is like nine chapters long, is a collection of his sermons to everyone. And he starts off his book actually not even talking to those two nations. He actually starts talking about the nations around Judah and Israel. And he starts going off on them for injustice. He says, look, you guys are letting injustice reign in your land. And not only are you doing that, but violence is a really big deal with y'all. Y'all are extremely violent. Now, just to get a picture of their violence, it, it wasn't something where we're like, hey, because you went to war and we're pacifists, that's, that's, that was the, that's, the, that's not the kind of violence they're talking about. They're talking about going like not only going into war, but going above and beyond after war. We're talking about like when they win battles, you know, they cut. This is pretty gruesome, but they, they would cut women open who were pregnant for sport. They would ki- kill men, women and children after conquering an area for sport. They would go and cut off limbs and certain body parts just for fun after they'd conquered someone. There's some pretty bad stuff going on. And then he goes off on them. And he says, man, you guys, the judgment of the Lord is coming to you. God wants you to change because the, your violence and your injustice is a problem. But then something very strange happens. Then he stops talking about the nations around Israel and he starts talking about Israel and Judah. And he says in it says in Amos chapter two, I'm going to read. I'm just going to read verse seven. He says he's talking about Israel. He says, basically, you trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father, son, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. It's pretty bad. Not going to say much about the second half of that verse, but I will I will speak of that first half. Says they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Did anybody catch that? I just said that he came pretty hard on Israel for what they did. But I just told you about violence of the other nations, and that sounds a whole lot worse. But he goes and he's talking about trampling on the heads of the poor as of the dust of the ground and then denying justice to the oppressed, making it seem like that's even worse. Maybe you're not maybe maybe you're not tracking with me. I'll go I'll go further in. He's looking at these group of people and he's like, look. He talks about it in Amos 3.1, and then he talks about it in Amos 2.10. I think I have 2.10 up here. This was their destiny. This was Israel and Judah's purpose. I brought you out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give 
the land, to give you the land of the Amorites. That probably didn't seem like that's saying much. He knows what he's doing when he says that. Israel was set apart in Genesis chapter 12. A man named Abraham, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless all your descendants. I'm going to give you descendants that are going to number. It's going to be like the stars in the sky. You're going to have so many descendants. But I'm not just going to give you these descendants so that you can be great. I'm not going to give you these descendants so you can look good. I'm not going to give you these descendants so that your name can be greater than all the other nations. I'm going to give you descendants so that you can bless everyone else. Your job in this life, your destiny is to be blessed by me so that you can be a blessing to everyone else around you. Now we jump forward to Amos. These other, these other nations, they were doing some bad stuff, but they didn't have, they didn't have God speaking to them, using pro- sending prophets to them, doing great things in their midst like he was doing in Israel and Judah. He blessed them mightily so that they could be a blessing to everyone else around them. And because they have not only rejected that, but gone into doing something where they basically are oppressing people as they were once oppressed and and are now trampling over the heads of the poor, God's like, this is really, really bad. Just to pause, we've been talking about Israel. We've been talking about Judah. What about us? What does this have to do with us? What if I what if I were to ask you a question? Do you trample on the heads of the poor? Do you continue oppression? Everyone, including me, would be like, oh, well, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about all that. I, I mean, it's there, but I don't see that in my life. What that means to trample on the head of the poor, the poor another way to say it is you just let the poor be forgotten in your midst. They're nothing to you. They're around you, but you don't do anything for them. You take no notice of them. They mean nothing to you. They're there, but they are forgotten. When I look back at my life, are the poor forgotten when I think about how I live my life every day? Does my life speak that the poor matter to me? Not what I think. Not what I would say or what I w- how I would defend myself, but does my life speak, oh, that Jordan Goody really cares about poor people. They matter to him. What about oppression? Do I speak up against oppression when I see it going on in the United States? When I see certain groups of people be disenfranchised or I think about like Charlottesville and stuff. I'm an African-American male. It's kind of uh, not the easiest group sometimes to, to be living in America. But I think about it like, well, what did I do with Charlottesville? Did I say anything? Did I, did I, did I, I mean, did I even pray or fight to like defend people who were being looked over? Did I stay silent? Not Charlottesville. An- another thing. Am I silent when it comes to people being oppressed? Do I speak up that this is not okay? Just a couple questions that I have to ask myself as I read the book of Amos. And just to pause, sometimes when we speak up here, we're talking about things that we have been able to experience. 
And sometimes we speak about things where we are talking to ourselves and we are equally convicted. This is one of those nights. I am not only speaking to you, speaking to myself. So what do you do with this? Some pretty heavy questions asked there. Think about Israel and some of the things that Amos is saying about injustice that they're letting go on, about oppression going on. What do you do with this? What is Amos's solution to this? It's funny because to me, if I was sitting in your seat, your seat I'd be like, all right, Jordan, what are you going to say next? You're going to say that Amos is going to tell me I need to join Black Lives Matters after this? Are you going to tell me that Amos, Amos is going to tell me that I need to go post more about social justice on you know, social media? Should I do that? Should I go join the Peace Corps? Is that what Amos is going to say? Or I need to go and fight for you know, this, this political party now? Is Amos going to say these things? Or, or what? Is he going to say, or is he going to like flip it? And is he going to come at it from like the religious angle? And he's going to say, like, oh, you just need to pray more. You need to pray more for these groups of people. Or you need to go to church more. You need to do more things for God. Is that Amos's answer? Amos says both of these aren't good enough. So that's not good enough. And if you think I'm jumping, if you think I'm like exaggerating, he says this specifically. He says it specifically, if I can get that word, specifically. He says in, oh, I thought I had it. Maybe I have it up here. There we go. Amos 5, 21 through 24. This is God's, this is Amos speaking the words of God. I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, they are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to them, to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Amos is saying that a real relationship with God should transform the way that you actually treat people. And then he says, let justice roll down like a river and the righteousness like a never-failing stream. If your worship doesn't lead to you actually fighting for the people around you, fighting against injustice, speaking up when things that aren't okay happen to people who are marginalized, when your worship doesn't lead to that, it's not good enough. In fact, I hate it. If your worship is just about you going to church and you saying that you didn't do a certain number of bad things, but then you don't treat anybody better, you're still cold to your friends, or you're still indifferent, or you're still mean and rude to people who aren't nice to you, if that's the way that your worship looks, I don't want it. So what does he want? He says it in chapter 5, and this is so cool. This is, this is like, so cool. I, I really enjoyed learning about this. I was really challenged, and I was really encouraged as well. Because he says this. He says, in Amos 5, 4, th- 4 through 6, he says, This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Those are places where people went to go and basically sacrifice to idols. They tried to come near to God through idol- idolatry. He said, seek me and live. But he doesn't just say that. 
in verse 14, he goes on to say more about it. He says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Do you see what's going on here? He is saying it's not one or the other. It's both. It's not more religion, and it's not more social justice. It's both. And if it's not both, then it's not the gospel. The world that we live in says either or. It says, all right, you got to be more religious, you got to be more holy, you got to be more set apart, and you distance yourself from those who are in need. Or you go to the other extreme, and you only look out for those who are in need, you serve the world, you fight for the world to be a better place, but then when it comes to your own integrity and you being right with God, that's a whole other matter. You can be kind of messed up on the inside, but you can do a lot of good for the world on the outside. That's what we see in the world. It's either or. Amos says, seek both and live. Seek God, and in seeking God, it has to come out in how you treat people. And if it doesn't come out, then maybe you're not seeking God rightly. This is good stuff. This is like, it's like quiet in here, but I figured it would be quiet in here. I figured it would be one of those nights, you know, it's like one of the nights where it's a little bit more tense. Because we live in America. And America is, is blessed. We have a lot of things. We enjoy a lot of resources. And we're not, we're not on the oppressed side of this. We're more on the oppressor side. And we have to think really hard about, am I sharing my resources? Am I sharing my time? Mm. I'm over here looking at the time. You know what? I'm sorry. I, ha- I have to do it. So we had a sermon prepared for idolatry, but we don't have enough time to go into it. And we didn't do that sermon on idolatry because it was the last one cut out in this Minor Prophet series. But right now, I just can't not say this. So I'm going to take two minutes for something that should have taken like five. So forgive me if I go fast. Idolatry is at the heart of this whole thing. Because go if we go back to verses Five, four through six. Sorry to be jumping around. He says, this is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not seek Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. What he is saying, ha, you got to catch this. The way that you worshiped idols back then is that you made sacrifices to them. And the more you sacrifice, the better you worshiped. That gets really scary because it eventually leads to really scary things being sacrificed. Even things as scary as your own children. People justified sacrificing their own children in order to to sacrifice sacrifice to gods like Anat, who was the god of war, or Moloch and Asherah, who were the gods of um, sex. And then I think sex, uh, maybe, but no, there we go, sex, yeah. And then Baal, the god of worship, <laughs> the god of weather, <laughs> not worship. When they sacrificed to these different groups of people or these different idols. They gave more and more and more. And God was saying, hey, through the prophets, many times, this is all throughout the Old Testament, actually, it's really bad when you, 
when you sacrifice to idols, because what happens is, and it says it clearly in Psalm 115 and in Psalm 135, actually, it says those who make idols, basically those who make them idols will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Those who make idols will be like them, and so will the people who trust in them. Those who make idols, those who trust in idols, they will become like idols. Look, God knows this. He knows that you were made for worship. You were made to worship. We can't not worship something. No one gets away in this life without worshiping something. He is saying to them, if you go and worship those idols, you will become like them. And when you worship something that doesn't value justice and it doesn't value righteousness, you will, in worshiping it, become the most ugly part or the most ugly form of who you could ever be. You will become so ugly. And that's why he wants us to worship him. I wish I could go way into this. This is what we talked about last week. Remember when we talked about how how much God loves you and how God wants to be the center of your life, he's not insecure. He's not, des- oh, I hope they really like me. If they don't like me, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't, you know, I'm going to be really embarrassed in front of my friends because those, those people that I created, they, they won't like me. Like, that, God is not insecure. God loves you. And he knows that if you don't worship him, you will become uglier and uglier and uglier because you won't be like him because he's the only he's the only one who actually cares about righteousness and justice the prophets cared about idolatry because those who worshiped I- worshiped idols were more and more unjust to the world around them they were more and more oppressive because the things that they worshiped didn't care about that The one true God, he cares about what you worship because he is desperate that you would become like him so that you would be the best you could be, so this world could be the best it could ever be. That's why he cares. I took four minutes, but at least I said it. All right, so we're kind of like we're kind of moving towards the end. This is a this is a weird sermon for me. It's very weird because personally, I'm I'm sitting in y'all's seat here. I'm re- I'm reading the book of Amos, and I'm just like, man, I'm on the one extreme here because usually I like theology, I love studying the Bible, but the poor and the marginalized are often forgotten by me. This is a very hard sermon to preach because just confessing, like I don't give nearly enough thought. To to those groups of people and others who are oppressed, I just don't. And so how would I respond to this? The first way I'm going to respond or not respond is I'm not going to go and get all over social media promoting social justice. I'm not going to go and get in Twitter arguments or Facebook arguments over specific groups of people and what I believe. That is not how I'm going to that's not how I'm going to respond to Amos. Another way that I'm not going to respond to Amos is I'm not going to go and join every social justice movement. You only have so much time, but I do know this, that I don't want it to be said about my life that I'm not doing anything. Just to pause that thought, I was talking to a student the other day, and we were literally just talking about this, social justice and all this stuff. And this person said to me, they were like, oh, man, this social justice thing is really interesting. And I was like, I just asked him, I said, hey, did your church back home? 
the churches you grew up in, the churches you always talk about, did they f- do stuff with social justice? And they were like, oh, yeah, they always talked about it. They talked about poverty, and they talked about fighting, you know, against drug abuse in West Virginia. I'm like, that's a very real thing. Drug abuse in West Virginia is a problem. And then I just asked, just not even trying to, like, catch them. I just said, oh, so did you ever see them actually do anything about that stuff? I don't know why I asked that question. I just asked it. And then they said to me, uh, you know what? Actually, I don't think they've done, I've never seen them actually do anything with those things. I've only heard them talk about it. And then I looked, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. And this person looked back at me, and he said, oh, are you, like, mad at my church now? And I told them, I said, I feel really bad because as you said that, I realized I was just like them. I only talk about this stuff. I don't actually do anything. I was so convicted. Another way that I want to respond to this, I think about a story by a guy named John Wesley. You all ever heard of him? We got any Methodists in the room? Some people, Meth- yes, my man, one. He knows about John Wesley, started the Methodist movement. Your boy was a freak. John Wesley was so sick. Man, I could just tell story after story about John Wesley. He's one of my heroes. I, wouldn't, I, don't, I don't know if I'd be here if it wasn't for John Wesley. He died many, many years ago. He was awesome. But I will say this about John Wesley. John Wesley, when he was younger, I want to say he was in college because the, the story includes him being in his dorm. He gets this sick job, starts making a whole lot more money than he ever made in his life. And what does he do with that money in his first paycheck? What I did with my first paycheck. I blew it all in, like, hours, not even days. Like, it was just, it was just gone. It was, I, I don't even think I – I may not even have gotten the check. I spent that money so fast. It was so fast. And he did the same thing. And then it just turns out that a poor person – I don't know how they got into the dorm. You know, these dorms are funny. You know, they just the – key cards. This is 1700s, but still, key cards are just kind of sh- shoddy back then. Maybe it was a new invention. Maybe it didn't work out. But either way, they got into his dorm, and they knock on his door, and they were like, hey, it's a really cold day. Do you have any money for me to buy a jacket, or do you just even have an extra jacket? And he was like, ooh, all I have is the jacket that's on my back. But let me go get some money for you. And he goes over to his wallet, reaches in there, and realizes he has no money left because he spent it all. And then he made a vow that day. He said, I will never be caught in a situation like this again where I have spent all of my money on myself, and I have no money to give to anyone else when they are in need. And for the rest of his life, he determined that he would always have extra money to be able to give. Always. I think about my time. Your boy is too busy to help anyone. I spend all my free time on myself before I even, before anyone can even show up and ask me for something. It's already gone. I think about my time, my money, my resources. How can I preserve these things in order to give even more when someone who is in need, who needs me to help them, when someone who is poor is asking for something, when some opportunity comes to serve somewhere, I don't have to be like John Wesley was in that moment where he was like, I'm full of regret. How can I use my time so that I always have time to give? That's another thing I took from this. The last thing that I took from this is I think about the injustice of the gospel. I live in a country where we got a whole lot of stuff, and y'all just happen to live here too. 
even if you're visiting university and you're not from here, you've at least been able to experience. You know, my boy Jesse, he's up there. He's from Rwanda. But he knows, and he was talking to me this about, about this the other day, about how much stuff we have here in America. We got a lot of stuff. And we know better than any other country out there, stuff is not going to satisfy you. You can have more money, and you can have nice clothes, and you can, you can have things, but they won't fulfill you completely. We know that it's not enough just to feed people. We know that it's not enough just to clothe people. They need the gospel as well. And the, bless you, and the greatest injustice of all is that people don't get a fair chance at the gospel, that they don't get a chance to meet someone who was sold out for Jesus, to meet someone their age who was sold out for Jesus. My small group leader was the first person I ever met who was my age who was on fire for the Lord. It took 18 years in my life. How long does it take other people? Am I speaking up about the gospel? This this is an injustice in this world if people do not get a fair chance at hearing about who the Lord is to you and what he has done for all of mankind. Woo! We're done. Shutting it down. You can pause though, Charles. You're about to walk up. You're, Charles is in the band. We're almost done. I got one last thing to say. Sean, Heather, Taylor, I told y'all I'd say this. I couldn't not say it. When I think about this whole thing when it comes to social justice and fighting for the world and fighting for the world to be a better place and it being justice and righteousness, when I think about all of this, you want to know the hardest thing about doing this in this world? It's not where to start. There's a lot of different places to start. You can go on a mission trip. There's like opportunities everywhere to serve. It's not where to start. That's not the hardest thing. And it's not even getting a heart for this because all of us in our heart of hearts, you know, we've, we talk about how God is a God of justice, but we all know injustice is bad. We said that at the beginning. We hate injustice. How could God not hate it as well? That's not the hardest part about this whole thing. You know the hardest part? The hardest part is doing it in this world. Because this world is mean, and it's dark, and it's exactly what Damani said. It, it is not nice when you try to live for Jesus. It isn't. The last thing I wanted to say tonight was I wanted to mention a man named Jeremiah, who was another prophet. And this guy was facing the same thing that we're talking about tonight. Because he is asking God some very hard questions. And he's like, look, I want to serve you. But how can I serve you if the wicked are always going to prosper? How, how can I serve you if those who don't even care about you look like they're making it out better than I am? If the people who are most comfortable are the people who are doing bad things in this world, what is this all about? In Jeremiah 1 through 4, 12, 1 through 4, I'm not going to read all this. But Jeremiah says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? 
everyone. I'm, I'm, I, I, you have had to have this question before. Why do those who don't even care about you, Lord, seem like they're doing better than those who are trying so hard, so desperately to love you, to love people, to fight for this world to be a better place? Jeremiah is really confused in this moment. His best friend, close, I'm not going to say best friend, a very close friend of his, has just died in battle. It really sucked what happened. His close friend, King Josiah, one of the only other people who Jeremiah felt like was just as passionate about God as he was, his friend goes out to battle with three other kings. These three, these four kings go and fight a very big, oppressive enemy, and they lose. But only one person dies, only one king. Josiah, the one who was on fire for God, and the three other kings were super notorious for being wicked. And, and Jeremiah's looking at this, and he's like, hey, man, come on. My boy dies, and then I got to see these dudes walk out. They're fine. My boy dies. Come on, Lord. What is this all about? And then this is what the Lord says. This is, this is how the Lord responds to, to Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets, the jungle, by the Jordan? Isn't that good? No, he- no heads are nodding. I figured none would be nodding. You're like, what's going on? This makes no sense. You're, you're talking about racing? What, what's going on right now? I'm going to read it one more time just so that you could catch that. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? I think this is so cool what God said to him. This is such an encouragement to me and what I do and what y'all do. He doesn't say, ah, hey, Jeremiah, you know I love you. Go look at one of the scriptures that tells you how much I love you. He doesn't say that to him. He doesn't say, oh, hey, I'm going to pat you on the back and make you. Hey, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you some money to make you feel better. Go spend some money on yourself. Have a, good, have a good day. Have a day off. You earned it. He doesn't say that. He actually comes to him and he challenges him. And he says, look, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how are you going to compete with horses? He tells him, I have called you to do the impossible. I have called you to greatness. Little people, they settle in this world. They live only for themselves. They live only for their comfort. All of their resources are for themselves. You, you were called, I gave you a destiny. Like Israel, I gave you a destiny that is far beyond you. I have called you to great things. And you can do those great things. And I will do those great things through you. But right now, we're in the very beginning of this, and you're already wearied over a small thing. I have called you to greatness. Jeremiah, are you going to settle right now? Are you going to quit when people don't agree with you over my gospel? Are you going to quit when it's not easy, when the world doesn't pat you on the back because you want to go and lay down your life for others? When your parents go and tell you, oh, hey, you should you should go and get a major that works out more for your career, and you should go and, and live easy, and you should be comfortable. You should go and do that. 
When they don't pat you on the back, when you want to lay it all down for me, are you going to give up then? That early? No, 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 no. No, Jeremiah, I've called you to great things with me. Are you going to quit now? Are you going to quit when people don't agree with you? This world will not agree with you. This world is funny. This is a funny world we live in. This world does not, this world will hate you for loving it. This world will, will slander your name and say all the worst things about you for treating this world better than it treats itself. This world will, will be mean to you. God is saying to Jeremiah, hey, hey, man, this is, this is tough. I know this is tough what I've called you to, but I didn't call you to do what other men do. Other men race against other men. You race against horses. You do what no men should be able to do. You make this place better than anyone could ever imagined. And this world is, this world exists. The best things that we enjoy in this world, we have because people saw verses like that and they didn't give up. They didn't live at ease. They didn't settle for a comfortable life. They live beyond themselves. The hardest thing about injustice in this world is the fact that this world's not gonna pat you on the back when you fight against injustice. Jeremiah, I've called you to run with horses. That's who you're going to run with. Don't let yourself be worn out when this world doesn't agree with you. The band can go ahead and come back up. I'm done. We can pray. Lord God, um, this, is, uh, this is a little less nice than... Uh, than we usually have it. But Lord God, you hate injustice. And you want us to do everything we can to fight against it. Lord God, I pray for everyone here that we would value your glory and we would agree to do great things with you more, Lord God, than dwelling at ease in the tents of the wicked, or wherever it is. Help us, Lord God, to not settle in this life, to not live at ease, to not pick comfort over what is best for this world and for you and your glory. Give us courage. Give us courage, Lord God, to do this, to fight and endure. Give us your courage, Lord. Help us, Lord to value justice and righteousness more. More than ease, more than comfort, more than satisfaction. And I know, Lord God, you will do great things through us. I know it. Thank you for inviting us to this. Thank you for doing the impossible through us and asking us to go even further with you. Pray this in Jesus' name.